Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Total Football Analysis EPL Podcast. We are the Thinking Fans Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and stat heads. We're sponsored by the EPL Prospectus, a 280-page guide of the upcoming season created by 25-plus writers and designers. Moneyball for football, analytics plus eye candy, available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Today, we're joined by soccer analyst Harshal Patel. Also on the pod is Dre Fortune, a professional attacking midfielder for North Carolina FC. I am host Chris Mumford. Bella Chow. During week eight, we had mostly normal outcomes. English clubs had an outstanding record in Europe last week, six and one with Man United as the odd man out. Goliaths, Man City and Liverpool settled for a draw, while Man U, Tottenham and Chelsea took care of business. Arsenal struggled against a plucky Aston Villa. Leeds stumbled in a peculiar match. And we have Leicester on top of the table. Today, we review Man City, Liverpool, Everton, Man United, Arsenal, Aston Villa, Chelsea, and Sheffield United, and other matches of note. Harshal, go ahead and get us started on the really the marquee match of the weekend, Man City versus Liverpool. Yeah, this was um, quite, I mean, City-Liverpool games have been perhaps the most interesting games and the most entertaining games between top two or sort of the big six teams that we have in the Premier League over the last uh, two, three years, you know, because they've both obviously been fighting towards the top of the table in that time. And in Guardiola, in Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp, you have two of probably the world's best managers um, on the touchline and they always bring in some form of tactical change or they, they try and nullify each other or try and get the better of one another. You know, the two managers who always go for a win. And those games have always been entertaining, both in the Premier League and in the Champions League, where they've also met in this time. Um, this Sunday's game was a bit of half and half, I think. The first half was really fast-paced, played at a really high tempo, chances at either end. And then you saw that drop significantly in the second half. But from a tactical point of view, what I found really interesting was that both sides were effectively playing a 4-4-2 or a 4-2-4. You know, that's, that sort of formation is something that's really died out over the last uh, decade or so as most teams have moved to a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1 to try and have three midfielders and you then essentially just have the one striker. But uh, Liverpool had a lot of midfield injuries and uh, absences. So And they also the fact that Diogo Jota has started his Liverpool career in such great form meant that, you know, from uh, Klopp almost had to pick him. So he played him on the right. Firmino was playing as a sort of number 10 behind Mohamed Salah. And uh, for City, Gabriel Jesus returned, which meant that they moved to a 4-2-3-1, which they've played a lot this season um, with Kevin De Bruyne playing as the number 10 and then Jesus as as the striker. So what this did was it led to a very open game in the first half. Both teams were pressing high, which was essentially the 4-2-4 that I spoke of. But Liverpool did it inten- in- intelligently because uh, Firmino and Salah were sort of blocking the pass into the center of the pitch, into the City midfielders. So there were a lot of times when City had the ball, but they couldn't get it through the center and they were just playing it around the back line. Uh, so they succeeded in that sense. The one time they failed with the press when Mane was pressing too high, it led to space on the right was when they, uh, uh, City essentially scored because there was space on the right. Uh, Wijnaldum was forced across to cover, which then created space in the center for De Bruyne to pick the pass to Jesus and Jesus scored. So. First half was great. Second half, I thought fatigue became a factor. 
uh, we we saw Trent Alexander Arnold go off with a calf injury, and Jurgen Klopp was quite uh, annoyed at the end with the fixture scheduling and the fact that they don't have five subs, and that's a big reason why the intensity dropped. And I think that we're going to see that with both teams this season that they're not going to be at the level that they have been over the last say eighteen months or so. And that's I mean in terms of a, of the result, yes, both teams dropped two points, but they were still pretty good. But I think because that intensity level is going to be lower, uh, it's not going to be a season where you need to get 85, 90 points or more to get the title. I think this is going to be a season where a much lesser points total will do it because City and Liverpool will drop a lot more points because of the schedule, because of injuries, because of COVID and all of that. So, in a sense, yes, it was a good game, but long-term implications, I think, are that you're going to see a much closer title fight and maybe. Uh, A smaller team has a has a chance. Ray, what's your take on the match? Yeah, um, I think I think it was a, a game of two of two different halves. Honestly, I think you know the first half was a lot more entertaining and, and free flowing and open. I think the second half was a little a little bit tighter and um, a little bit slower. I don't use the word boring, but um, I think in in comparison, you have one that was a little more tighter than the other. Um, obviously, in the end, they they end up tying the game. I thought I thought. Uh, But the penalty was a fair one. I know, I know we've had issues with that, um, you know, throughout the course of the season and with VAR and whatnot. I thought the penalty for Liverpool was fair. But Man City scored a good goal. I think Jesus was a little bit fortunate with uh, with, it, with his touch, but it works out like that sometimes. And, and they end up scoring a good goal. I think some talking points out of the game, obviously, would be the the penalty that was awarded to Man City. Um, you know, everyone's complaining about where Gomez's hands are supposed to be, as opposed to. Um, you know, is it a natural? Is it a natural position? I think I think they were a little bit unlucky to to have conceded that, but then De Bruyne goes up and misses it anyhow. So um, I think that's definitely one big talking point. And then, as Harshaw mentioned, I think the subs are, are a big thing. Um, injuries may be a little more prominent with you know less subs and, and the way that the schedule is right now. So I know um, both Pep and and Klopp spoke after the game in their interviews about potentially trying to sort that out and and, and get that changed. So I'll be interested to see. How that works out for them in the future. Yeah, I think my take on it was I I found the first half so incredibly delicious. Right? I mean, just like wow, I want to play soccer that way. Right? Second half, uh, you could just tell the gas seemed to be just or the there, there was no wind in the sails. Um, XGs ended up pretty comparable for both teams: one point three, one point four for Liverpool and Man City. Even the um, possession, fifty-five percent Man City. You kind of expected. You know, the truth is, is for all the brilliance, the Man City only took seven shots, of which there were two on target, and Liverpool took ten shots, of which there were three on target. And um, you know, you would ex- you would hope that in the final third there would be more fireworks with uh, with these better teams. But the truth is, is that. They seem to neutralize themselves. I was struck, though, that Man City, the attacking was 40% on the left and 43% in the center, while as yet for Liverpool, it was 90% in the center. So I just I found that interesting. I will say that the goalkeepers, uh, I think, uh, didn't have a whole lot of work if you only had five shots on target. Uh, but to their credit, they came off their line awfully high sometimes just on top of the box or just outside of the box and were either able to clear or pass out to uh, a teammate 
uh, and really kind of avert some um, potential very dangerous um, goal scoring opportunities for the opponents. So I would probably look forward to going back and watching that first half again, just to watch really poetry. Um, but the second half I could easily do without. And, you know, I think one, one was probably a fair result. And, uh, you know, I think all of us were looking a little bit of drama between, um, Pep and, and Klopp, um, but the thing they seem to be most animated about, they, they were agreeing upon. They have a mutual enemy, which is uh, is uh, is three substitutions versus five in a cluttered fixture list. So I don't know. I thought that was, uh, I, I, I honestly, I've, I left feeling a little unsatisfied um, with the 1-1 match, but um, I think that uh, if that's what they do and they keep beating teams that are lessers and then they're probably going to end up in first and second, which wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, well, let's go ahead and change our, our attention, um, Harshell, to um, I want to take a quick detour to talk about Man United and the Besticas because they were the odd man out with respect to Champions League. And then let's go ahead and circle into the Everton Man U match. Walk us through the uh, Man U Besticas match, please. Yeah, the basic test match was again with United. It's been, it's 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 been. You know, I said this last week as well. It's like one step forward, one step back. And uh, coming off a one nil loss to Arsenal last week in the Premier League, you would have thought that the basic test game was ideally a good match for them to get back into sort of winning ways, right? Because it's, I mean, basic aren't really uh, a formidable opponent. It's their first season in the Champions League ever. And it ended up being their first win of the. I, I'm not sure if it were, if that were, I think it was also was the first time they've scored a goal in the Champions League, and they ended up winning the game as well with the two goals. So uh, it was just that game in terms of tactics and organization and structure. Again, uh, United started with a diamond in midfield, which they had done for the previous two or three games as well, but it didn't seem to work. Positioning was all over the place. You had. There were uh, United were again favoring the left hand side way too much, and there were passages of play, especially in the first half, where you'd have six or s- even at times seven outfield players all towards that left uh, sort of space. But it wasn't being capitalized on. I mean, when you have those many players on one side, you obviously have overloads. You're overloading uh, the opposition in uh, in terms of numerical advantage. But you, the, there were no quick passing exchanges or no movement to take advantage of that and create space. And uh, in the second half, Ole made a couple of changes. He put Matic in at uh, center half, brought, uh, I believe it was McTominay who came on for, uh, I, I can't remember who went off, but McTominay, I think it was Fred who went off. And uh, it, even after that, it was just, it was pretty comfortable, I'd say, for Istanbul because it's not like uh, United mounted a serious surge or that there were too many saves that the goalkeeper had to make. Again, the structure was a little off. There's not, and that the United have been an unbalanced side. They don't have enough of an attacking threat down the right hand side. And you've seen that so many times now that opposition teams are content to let that side sort of, you know, stay relatively unguarded. And there were times when Van Bissaka was free, but he didn't have anybody in front of him. And the, the Istanbul were happy to let that situation play out because they knew that even if Van Bissaka does get the ball, like say if Pogba or whoever Fernandez switches the ball out, Van Bissaka himself is not great at attacking and he doesn't have a winger in front of him who can do damage. So 
that sort of lopsided attacking shape that United have had for the last, I'd say, 18 months or so, um, again, is an issue. And that, and obviously, we've seen enough uh, footage on social media of the first goal where everybody was up at that corner and Dembaba was able to run through on goal from his own half with nobody, not a single United player covering from a, a, a United corner. That was just, as as people have pointed out, that was Sunday league stuff. You see better defending at, at schoolboy level, right? So that, I don't know who, who picks up the blame for that, whether it's the coaches or the players. And even the second goal, Maguire gets done by a dummy by Bar, and then that leaves um, the winger absolutely free and open in the box to take a shot. So, school uh, basic mistakes, basic errors that happen in that game. So, uh, that so, was not quite a great show. So, Dre, help us understand this here. You've got a Man United that has a poor showing on midweek, and then they show up on on the weekend and have a, a really good outing. What what have your the experience has been like on on teams you've played for in terms of having that level of inconsistency and what's the what's the player's mindset there? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that always just comes down to mentality. I mean, they um, obviously they they lost at home to Arsenal and uh, that that'll be something that they're frustrated with and unhappy with. But then I think the Champions League game is is you know nobody expected them to lose that. So you know after losing that game, I think. You don't get into a panic, but you—it's it, very, it's very eye-opening and, and alarming, and you know the, the the bells start going off a little bit, and I think that just kind of gets them to to refocus. And um, I think something that people say a lot in the game is get back to the basics, get back to the things that, um, you know, the simple things. So, for example, the something as basic as when you lose the ball, make sure that you get back into your shape first, and 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 little things like that I think help you to progress, and I think that's kind of what. They um they looked at in terms of the next game going forward, which is which is the game against Everton. Well, and that Everton match was very interesting. I thought in that you know if you at first glance at at the numbers, the xgs were pretty comparable: 0.84 for Everton and 0.94 for Man U. And you know Everton dominated possession of fifty seven percent. They did better in duels uh, overall at fifty three percent. And there were 21 shots, uh, 22 shots taken on goal, but there were, I'm sorry, there were 22 shots total, but there were only six on goal. Everton had one on, on, on target and, uh, uh, Man United had five. So, and frankly, De Gea did not have a single save that entire match. So, um, that's a bit of a head scratcher in that Everton dominated possession, um, didn't have any shots on goal, uh, and, you know, it seemed like Everton was was hustling even more, and this reminded me of maybe a Everton of last year or the year before um, versus kind of the new, new, new look twenty twenty. Harshal, what, what's your take on it? I think, and I mean, there is a stat doing the rounds on social media as well, where basically every game that um, Richarlison has missed since he joined Everton, mm-hmm. I think a couple of seasons ago, they've not won. Um, I don't know what the number is. I think it's 17 or 18 games or something like that. But And Ancelotti actually, because he was asked so many times in the pre-match and in the build-up to this game, he, he literally said that, you know, this is, it's it's not really a stat that means anything, but we do need to improve on it and make sure we can win games without him. But mm-hmm. I think the way this Everton team is set up and the, and the profile of players that they have, Richarlison is really unique because 
he obviously he can play as a striker and a winger and he if you look at say for example his xg numbers he's averaged an expected goals per 90 number of 0.28 no matter where he's played whether he's played on the right whether he's played on the left or whether he's played centrally in his everton career or it might just be in his premier league career as well i'm not sure whether that includes his tenure at watford as well but he's just extremely effective no matter where he plays on the pitch but when he's been playing on the left with calvert-lewin as a striker he's direct he's pacey he can dribble past players and obviously he can set up goals for uh calvert-lewin but score himself as well and they've lost that they don't have that cutting edge anymore cuz uh they've tried uh alexey wobi there they've tried to play andre gomez in sort of like an inverted sort of attacking midfielder sort of position uh bernard was the one who played there this weekend and he did score but he's again not someone who has the same skill sets and he's just very unique um richardson so i think once he comes back and once they have that sort of first choice lineup back that everton i'm not saying that they'll hit the same uh sort of form that they had at the start of the season but they will be a more threatening outfit but at the same time there are there is obviously a concern then that if you're so reliant on maybe one or two players that if they get injured or you know they yeah, get suspended as is the case with richardson that your team is going to struggle and that's what's happening with everton So Dre, what's your take on coaches that have played the game at a pretty high level um versus coaches that haven't because Ole clearly did play at a very high level uh and you know what what have your personal experiences been with those different types of coaches and you know what I I feel that we're obliged to talk about whether Ole should go or not so uh, what what are your thoughts on that Um I think I think they obviously they'll have different perspectives. I mean when you when you've played you have a different understanding of the game uh to someone who hasn't played but then at the same time I think you're you're um depending on when you played. So for example, someone like Solskjaer who stopped playing a little bit longer ago versus someone like Arteta who only recently stopped playing. Mm-hmm. I think the, the the changes in the game I think sometimes they they may struggle to to get a hold of So um I think that can affect their their coaching style a little bit and I think Solskjaer is just kind of you know still trying to figure it out a bit and I don't know I it's it's something that you know you obviously you want you want to be able to give managers time and and allow them to figure things out you can't be too too hasty to make decisions uh but uh, I mean then again if the club is Manchester United I mean I I have the table up in front of me it goes down to 12 and I don't see them on the on the list and that's not something that the club stands for at all so it, it it's a little bit tough um I'd like to see him stay. I'd like to see him, you know, maybe get another full season and then see how it plays out and um just kind of go from there, but it, it it's tough. I I understand the fans are a little bit a little bit anxious to to see results and and see positive changes, so I know they'll be probably calling for that. Well, what I find interesting is if you look at the last 3 managers, um Bengal had 52 wins, 24 draws and 24 losses. Mourinho had 62 wins, 23 draws. and 15 losses and Ole's had um 56 wins, 20 draws and 24 losses. So he's done a little better than Bengal and a little bit worse than Mourinho. So, you know, I don't know if that's still man man united quality, but I just think it it does make sense to to keep things in perspective. Um you know, I will tell you uh that the Poch interview obviously generated um some heat uh on the interwebs. Uh you know, I I really think he's he's quite quite a uh 
quite a coach and um you know I've, i i think there's just growing tension on whether he he, he manu's going to lose him to somebody else um harsh i'll give you the last word on this yeah it's as you said you know the most fans i think i mean man united fans do want to give ole time obviously because of his status as a club legend and all of that and because they have been encouraging results throughout his tenure mostly against the big teams and his clear weakness is in sort of setting up a team to break down a low block or or a team where you know the teams that sitting back but as you said the, the main concern is that when you have someone like Mauricio Pochettino who's available potentially even someone like Mauricio uh, like Max Allegri who's also available since he left the Juventus job when you have a couple of top class managers available uh it's it's about weighing up whether you know do you want to make the change right now and bring in someone who's proven even though i mean in the case of pochettino it's not like he's he's proven at in terms of winning trophies but he clearly improved that spurs side by leaps and bounds individual players and the team during his time there so it's a case of whether as you said do you to risk it stick with the guy you put your sort of money on and you you you've backed or do you then try and make another change and bring in someone who's a bit more proven so it's it's the same i think dilemma within the fan base as well whether people do want united to stick with ole but at the same time there's this concern about if say united were to sack him 6 months down the line sack ole 6 months down the line we may not have pochettino available at that point yeah. might have gone somewhere else so okay um dre walk us through the arsenal aston villa match what was your take on that game that was very very frustrating to watch for me <laughs> i'll start there um No but honestly I, I I mean all credit to Aston Villa I think they they went out and they they did a job uh they had a clear plan and I I I think it worked I mean they scored three good goals Arsenal just never really looked like they were like they were really up for it I mean it was just I don't know I don't know they they struggled they struggled in all aspects of the game I mean and it's not really I think just from a clear effort perspective I think Aston Villa beat them in that and that just kind of led to everything else throughout the game um Jack Grealish was was really good on the day. Holly Watkins was really good. Ross Barkley was good. Um and I mean I think I think from from the opening whistle I mean Aston Villa scored within a minute of of the kickoff. I mean they from kickoff they went straight forward into the Arsenal half. Uh you know Arsenal tried to clear it. They win the second ball, they put the ball down, they go forward and and you know they were they were on the front foot from the beginning. They weren't backing down from Arsenal as, as teams often do. and uh i think that just kind of set the tempo for the whole game harshell what's what's your take on the match yeah as jay said um arsenal were i mean quite disappointing in terms of how they approached the game and it what i found interesting was i mean obviously with crowd no, uh, with uh, no no crowds you can hear a lot more of what's being said on the touchline and for the first I'd say probably for the first twenty minutes or so, you could literally hear Arteta. I mean, it was. I'm not exaggerating here. You could hear him tell each player where to pass the ball. It was literally him instructing every player when they were on the ball where to pass or whom to pass to, and it was that level of uh, instruction or micromanagement that he was doing. Now, whether that's because the players weren't sticking to the game plan he wanted them to stick to, or whether it was just a lack of confidence and him wanting to sort of make it a bit easier for them by telling them what to do rather than then them having to think for themselves i don't know but 
I don't think that's a good sign when a coach has to. I mean, I can understand one player or two players, you know, where you're telling them, okay, you need to do this or do that. But he, I, he was literally coach telling the entire team, every player, where to pass. So I don't know. It's it's, and we've had this sort of conversation around Arteta as well. It's similar to the one we've had around Solskjaer, where you wonder whether, I mean, he's up for it. He has shown a lot of promise. There is sort of evidence of a ta- tactical plan and what he wants to do, but. Results like this then put all of that, you know, under the microscope. And I mean, the stats don't make for good reading as well. If if you look at expected goals, for example, Arsenal are 13th in the league for expected goals per 90. They're, I think, 16th in the league for shots per 90. Um, Aubameyang has scored two, I think, goals in the league all season. One of which is from open play, which was on the opening day against Fulham. The other goal he scored was from the penalty spot against Arsenal, um, uh, against United uh, last weekend. And there's a clear lack of creativity. And then you have a 350,000 pound player sitting on the bench, not even on the bench in Mesut Ozil. So those questions are always going to be kept asking as long as he's at the club. But there is there are clear issues there. One of which is that there's no creativity in this side and they're, they're going to struggle to create chances. And, that's, and obviously the defense didn't do well in this game either. So same sort of issues as United. You know what? What I was really struck by still is is the Obama Yang question, right? I mean, seventy seven percent of attacks on Arsenal were on the left side, so he was busy doing something. Um, but uh, in terms of being able to put the ball in the back of the net, um, is still an open question. I, I guess the other elements that I found interesting is is that um, Arsenal had fifty six percent possession, and more times than not against better teams, they're happy to give up um, having a majority possession, but not this match. Uh, and the fact is, is that, um, you know, we could we could chalk this up to that goal getting scored and the first goal getting scored in the 46th second, right? Where, as uh, we all know, really changes the complexion of a match. But what I was really struck by is the duels, um, and I know this is a general statistic, but it's still s- b- worth mentioning. Arsenal won 38% of the duels and um, Aston Villa won 50- 59%. And in terms of loose ball, um, uh, um, Aston Villa is winning a-, a majority of those. And I just, I think in terms of outright hustle, I think Aston Villa just really they just, they just seem to work a whole lot harder, and the, and the stats seem to ba- to bear that out. I will tell you um, that third goal, uh, all the goals were very appealing to watch. I mean, just, Aston Villa. Uh, not to interrupt, Chris. Sorry, just yeah. a correction. Um, Villa didn't score in the first minute. That goal was ruled out by VAR. Ah, uh, that's true. Good yeah, point. Yeah, was disallowed. Yeah. Good point. Well, um, I I still. I mean, think it was that... a brilliant goal. It was an absolutely brilliant well, goal, and, and, and the I, argument that you know, Leno yeah. wouldn't have saved it. Even if there was nobody in front of him, but uh, I think it was Barkley who was offside. Who was that's exactly right? Yeah, the fact, and I think you, thanks for correcting that. Um, still, would would make the argument that they were very much on, on the, front, yeah. the front foot, and particularly even that the last goal, which was incidentally initiated by Martinez on a um, on a save and then rolling it out to the left side, it was just they just seemed to be firing on on um, all cylinders. And I just, I don't know where Arsenal is right now. I, I want to believe in the Arteta story, right? I want to believe in the Obama Yang. 
he made the right decision and decided to stay someplace for another five years. But Dre, what, what do we do with Aubameyang? Where do we put him? How do we activate him? I, I don't know. I mean, I've always, I've always thought that he would be better playing down the middle. Uh, for some reason, they, they choose not to operate that way. I mean, I think uh, when you bring in William, you have more options out wide now. I mean, you've got him, you've got Pepe, uh, you've got Sacco who can play out wide. So, I, I mean, I, I thought that, you know, they might entertain that a little bit more, but obviously I thought they're still going with Lacazette down the middle. So, I don't know. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, you, without, without the creativity aspect that, that everyone's talking about, you don't really know how, I mean, he's, he's not a guy that you're expecting to create chances for himself and stuff like that. He's someone you want on the end of your chances to finish. So, um, without guys around him who are going to really create for him, I think it's tough to put much blame on him and, and, and really expect much more because he's, he's there to finish. That's really, that's his job. That's his role. So I don't know. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see how, how, how they move forward. Right. Well, it seems like Man United and Arsenal are struggling mightily with consistency. And um, I, I don't want to diminish Aston Villa because I, I really, they're they're fun to watch now, right? I mean, they've got some real talent in there. They've spent a, quite a bit of money. They've kind of gone under the radar, but they've spent, I think, over $100 million. Is that right, Harshell, about that? Um, and, uh, you know, the they're looking like they're playing that way at the very least. Um, so um, we'll kind of see how Aston Villa goes. And we keep I keep hesitating to answer the question, are they the real deal or not? But it seems like they're making a pretty strong case for that. Um, Harshel, any any quick notes on the, the Chelsea-Sheffield United match? I mean, it was Sheffield United. They have struggled this season. So I wouldn't get too overjoyed by sort of Chelsea's result. But, I mean, it still was a pretty good result, you know. I thought the first goal that scored in the match, obviously, was Sheffield United. That was a really well-worked set-piece that uh, Chelsea got caught out at. But then they sort of took control of the game, kept pushing. And uh, the new signings and, obviously, Tammy Abraham, who's been there a while from the youth academy, sort of got the job done. And I thought... From an individual player point of view, Ben Chilwell was really good. He scored again and he sort of was that sort of, you know, up and down presence that you need from left back. And Hakim Ziyech, who's had a late start because he, he was injured, um, he's come into the side and he's done superbly. I think he has now three assists in the last two Premier League games and he did well in Champions League as well. And he, you know, coming in from the right hand side, he just, his left foot is, it's like, a magic wand, you know, he can put the ball where he wants it in the box. And he did that um, twice, arguably should have had another assist for uh, for a Werner chance. But you're seeing signs that these guys are now gelling together, that they're, they're able to uh, sort of play together, even though Chelsea do have some injury and other absences. Kai Havertz uh, tested positive for COVID, so he's not going to be available, I think. He might be back by the time the the next round of games starts, but he certainly wasn't available here. Pulisic has picked up another hamstring injury, so he's out for a while. But then Ziyech, Mount, Werner on the left, and then Tammy Abraham up front, you know. So that attacking piece looks like it's coming together. Defensively, I think there's still issues, but they, they, as long as they're able to build a solid unit, Thiago Silva, Zuma, Chilwell, and probably for most games, I think it'll be these James. Aspilicata might come in for certain games. Um, that sort of unit, I think Chelsea are getting there. There is still, I think, a lot of work to do, but this was a good display. Um, Dre, any thoughts on the the Crystal Palace 
Leeds match? Yeah, I mean, I I personally was very surprised by that. I didn't, I would have never guessed Palace would have would have won four one and ran away with that. Um, but no, I mean, I I I didn't catch the full game. I only saw bits and pieces of it. Uh, as they scored a phenomenal free kick, I believe it was in there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was that was a joy to watch. And I think you know, Crystal Palace, they're they've always been a team that you know they're going to have some really good results. They're going to have some questionable results and. Uh, this one obviously was really good for them, and then they're climbing up the table a little bit. I mean, they're in eighth place now, so I think they're going to be pretty happy with them, pretty comfortable. And then on the other hand, the thing, you know, Leeds, Leeds is uh, definitely going to need to sort some things out to to, to move forward. But um, I'm sure they will. I mean, Bielsa is a, a incredible manager, so he's going to he's going to sort out the little kinks there. But yeah, I was definitely surprised by the result. Yeah, my my general take on it was, um, you know, I think Bielsa said uh, they that. Uh, they deserve to lose. But if I, if I looked at the goals, um, you know, they gave up a, a header um, that from about six or seven yards out, really kind of almost a deflection off of the defender's head as well once it was going forward. Um, so the Meslier did not really have any, any chance at it. That beautiful um, set piece, which is just like, as a keeper, you look at it and you're just like, the only thing you can do is just say, nice shot. Um, and then, um, you know, the third was a deflection uh, from basically a cross deflected off of a defender and went in the near post by the keeper, which, you know, I, he was clearly starting to look to jump um, in a cross as any keeper should do. And that deflection was really unfortunate. Fourth goal in my mind was was legit great play by Crystal Palace. Um, so I think that's one of those ones you chalk up to some, some bad luck to that. I mean, Leeds was Leeds, right? I mean, they, they, um, uh, dominated possession. They, um, their defensive intensity was, was amazing. Um, but in terms of shots, it, it was the game you love to watch 21 shots, um, 10 on target. So plenty of work for the goalkeepers there. So, um, you know, we'll kind of see where, where Leeds goes forward, but, uh, I, uh, they're going to be playing Ar- Arsenal coming back. So <laughs> I'm not sure that Arteta is going to be too excited about playing them on your, uh, just as you're coming off the international break. So, um, well, good. Well, um, Harshel, why don't you kind of walk us through the table a little bit? What are some things that really stand out, um, from your perspective? Yeah. Um, obviously, I mean, it's still early. We've played eight games. City and United have played seven. And obviously, the other two teams they were going to play have also played seven. So, still early. But uh, you're, you're seeing Leicester at the top of the table. Spurs are second. Southampton are doing well. Villa are doing well. Palace are level with Everton. I mean, everybody was talking about Everton's great start. And they've, that's obviously leveled off. They've lost their last three games. But Palace and Everton, Everton are on 13 points, as are Wolves. So, even West Ham are on 11 points. You know, they're, they're two points behind Wolves, a point behind City and Arsenal. So, a lot of these teams, say the mid-table, mid-to-lower-table sides have had a decent start. Some of them have had a better start than others. And there's not like there's no one uh, common factor behind all of this, but I will still put it down to the absolute sort of crazy season we've had in terms of the scheduling and how quickly they've had to uh, 
come back after the, after last season ended and that's that this season we've spoken about it multiple times this is going to be a freak season it's going to be messy so don't be surprised if towards the end of the season or even say two thirds of the season even when we're say two thirds of the uh, way through you could still see some of these clubs in that you know in the higher reaches of the table because the big teams could struggle we've all we are already seeing some of the big teams struggle and on the on the flip side some of these teams could do well and that's i think something to keep an eye on as we go ahead so dre lesters in first tottenham had a workman like win at 1-0 um this weekend do you think these guys have staying power or not in terms of being able to 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 fight legitimately for top four placing i mean obviously there's there's always a chance you can't rule it out especially when i mean we saw lester win win the premier league not too long ago but um I think I think it'll start to balance itself out a little bit and take a little bit more of a quote unquote normal shape as the season progresses. Um obviously right now the schedule's a bit hectic with, with European competitions and everything going on in like Russia. I mean I think that I think the quick turnaround was the biggest hit uh to all the specifically the big teams, uh just because of all the competitions they participate in and whatnot. Um I don't know. I mean Manchester City's tenth, Arsenal's eleventh. Menu, I believe it's 14th or something like that. I mean, you'd imagine that they, they start to rise a little bit and the results of, of a Leicester City will, will kind of drop off a little bit. Southampton, Villa, those kind of teams. So I, I expect that it'll take a bit of a normal shape. I won't be surprised if it doesn't just because of, I mean, it's a crazy, <laughs> crazy season, crazy times. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think within the next, I'd say maybe 15, to 20 fixtures, it'll, it'll start to look a bit, a bit more normal, what we expect. Yeah, you know, I took a look at Leicester's and Tottenham's, um, you know, what their matches were so far. And, and granted, we're only 20% into the season, but mm-hmm. they've, they've played some pretty challenging teams. So it hasn't been due to a soft schedule. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the real surprises for me are really, um, I, I didn't think Tottenham was really going to be able to show as well. Um, and they have, and maybe it's because of too much of the all or nothing, thinking about that too much. Southampton, I just don't know what to make of it. Um, but again, it's, it's early season, but they've had, you know, four wins and, and one draw in the last five matches. So they're, they're playing some really good football. Chelsea seems to be getting their act together. I think Mindy was an, an important missing piece and, I think um, their investments in their back line have really paid off in a big way. And I think now they're going to start focusing on scoring goals now that they have some trust in their defense. Um, I don't know what to make of Everton. I don't know what to make of Leeds. Um, um, and I certainly have no idea which day uh, on Arsenal and, and Man United, who, who which team is going to show up because we know that they have opportunities for brilliance. Uh, and sometimes they, they, they look like a dullard. Um, as far as Man City goes, you know, um, I think having Jesus back, having a legit striker, um, is going to lighten their load considerably. And you're hope, we're hoping that Aguero is going to be coming back, um, um, by the, uh, once we come back from the international break. So, um, Harshel, what, any other general observations on, on the league? Any things you're going to look for or surprises? A um, couple of things. I'm going to, I mean, you mentioned City. Uh, there has been a distinct drop in a number of metrics from last season. Mm-hmm. If uh, 
you know, if you look at expected goals, for example, um, City, I believe, are quite low on that list. They're 10th or 11th on the list for expected goals so far this season. The likes of Villa, Southampton, Brighton, um, West Ham, Leeds, Chelsea, all of them have a higher XG total than City, which you don't really expect. I mean, City usually are under Pep have been among the top scorers in the league and some of the highest sort of chance creators in terms of volume. So that is concerning for Pep to look at because obviously you don't have Aguero. You, and we've, I spoke about this last week as well. It's one thing to not have Aguero and Jesus to finish the chances, but you need to be creating the chances as well in the first place. And at the moment, City are definitely struggling to create chances. And it is looking a little bit like a one-man team where it's either De Bruyne creates a chance or there's no creativity, you know, and that's not how City used to be. So that's a bit of a concern, and I'll be looking at how um, that evolves over the last over the next few weeks with City. And then I'm going to be looking at the other teams. You know, Southampton, as you said, they had a pretty pretty difficult start, but they've recovered really well. But now they don't have Danny Ings till uh, about mid to end December because he's had surgery on his knee. So uh, Asen Hootel started Theo Walcott with uh, Che Adams as his two strikers. He is one of the few who's consistently played like with two strikers. He plays a 4-2-2-2. So Theo Walcott played as that striker. He did well. Che Adams scored and Stuart Armstrong scored. So it'll be interesting to see if Southampton can keep that run going without Ings. If Leicester can keep their run going. I've been really impressed with Rogers, with Brendan Rogers, because he's proved he's shown that he's really flexible tactically. There have been games where He's sat back, defended and countered and he's won against City and Leeds like that. But then there are other games where Leicester have gone out and dominated possession and won as well. So he has shown a bit of tactical flexibility and, and an ability to get players playing in different roles and still be able to pull off the results. So again, that is one thing. And then lastly, Leeds. Uh, I will say that the game against Palace was... as It was a bit of an aberration. You don't expect... Um, leads to lose that heavily against a side like Palace, but that is the type of system or the type of team that they have struggled against this season. They've lost four games. If you discount the one against Liverpool, because obviously that was a madcap end-to-end game, the other three losses have been against Palace, Leicester and Wolves, all three of which sat back, defended, and then counter-attacked. And that might, you know, that if there are, and I'm sure other managers are taking note of this and that might be the way to set up against Leeds, and don't be surprised if, you know, next week, uh, next next week, I should say, uh, Arteta decides to do the same thing against Leeds. That give them the ball, we we'll sit back and soak up their pressure and the energy and the running that and the sort of that they build up in our half, and then we'll counter attack. So those are some of the things I look at. Um, Dre, so what are you going to look forward to in uh, in in the international ba- break and really kind of the upcoming fixtures, what, what are the things you're going to be paying attention to? Um, actually, I, I looked at the schedule earlier. I think the only, let me double check for one sec. I think the only game that I was really looking forward to was Netherlands play Spain, I believe. I think that, I think that one would be really good. Other than that, I mean, I don't know. I think they looked a, bit, a little bit, a little bit on the boring side, but I, I guess, I mean, this football, anything can happen. So uh, I'll, I'll definitely be watching them and, and looking forward to some of those. Um, and the other thing, I mean, I think, I think a big thing right now, is, as far as the Premier League is concerned, is, is injuries and just getting players back to full fitness. And, and I think that'll go a long way, especially for some of the bigger teams. I mean, obviously, they might not going to be back immediately, but 
you know, you look at Liverpool, they're missing him. Trent just got injured. Uh, you know, they've had some injuries in midfield. I think that leads to some of their struggles. You look at Man City, uh, they've just got Jesus back. They're still, you know, waiting on Aguero. They've, they've lost David Silva, so they're still transitioning from that aspect. Um, I think I was just thinking about it. Uh, I think Chelsea is the only team that's really kind of found their, their groove. I mean, they've had a, you know, a few back to back routine wins, which I think they're going to, you know, obviously look to, to keep going after the international break. Hopefully that doesn't break their stride a little bit. So, um, I think, you know, I think a lot of the teams have some things that they're going to look to improve on throughout the break, obviously, and then, and, and come back, come back firing on all cylinders. But yeah, you know, anything happens. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's going to be really interesting. Uh, you know, at, if we turn our attention just a bit to Champions League, um, you know, for all the drama um, of Man United losing, they're still in first place in their group, uh, tied for first place. Um, all the other teams, the the English teams in Champions League are in first place in their group. Uh, and from a Europa uh, perspective, um, they're in first place as well. So, you know, I think that from a competition perspective, um uh, at least the European competition perspective, the English Premier League is 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 doing just fine. Um, so yeah, I think we've got um, a, a bit of a break here uh, and regroup. You know, I do I, I do find it interesting, uh, Harshal. You said earlier about the the one man team or such a heavy reliance on one player, but I don't know if that's that's an a, the just the domain of of the English Premier League. If you look at Lukaku for Inter, uh, you look at um, Ibra for AC Milan, and you look at Ronaldo for Juve. All those teams have struggled um, when those key players uh, are not um, in the in the lineup. Um, so it's, you know, I, as a goalkeeper, I always complain why strikers get paid so much money, um, but you end up seeing why they do, <laughs> because it's hard to stick the ball in the back of a net, particularly when you have competent goalkeepers throughout the league. So, you know, that's going to be a really interesting theme, you know, to kind of get back to where we started this season was the notion of messy, um, just things being unsettled. And I will tell you, I feel that after these, these matches and the eight games um, that, I still don't have really clear visibility um, on kind of how it's all going to play out. I still think Liverpool and Man City are the load stars or the, that where the gravity is. Um, but, you know, it, that's, that's carrying through the other element, which is kind of dogma versus pragmatism. I do think that um, I'm, I'm seeing a lot more pragmatism um, from folks that I would, would expect to be fairly dogmatic. Right. I mean, um, if you had, told me that Liverpool was going to consider doing a, a 4-4-2 um, and, uh, or just really, at most of the time, it seemed like four up top. Uh, and, um, and so, I, and even seeing Bielsa in terms of some of the tactical um, um, switches that he's, he's making. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe dogmatism is, is, uh, is, is starting to disappear um, a little bit, or, or maybe pragmatism, or it's being balanced by pragmatism. But I guess we just got to keep up and keep um, watching the rest of this season. So gentlemen, why don't we leave it there? Uh, we are sponsored by the EPL Pro Prospectus, a 280-page season guide created by a team of 25-plus writers and designers. Moneyball for football 
analytics plus opposition analysis plus eye candy available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Join us for our next Football Thinking Fans podcast. For now, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao.